Leviticus 26, 1 through 46, I titled the sermon, Faithful to Bless and Punish. Faithful to Bless and Punish. And that might strike you as a strange title, but I I think we're going to see that more as we unfold these verses and kind of unpack them together. Um, It is a a really spectacular passage. Uh, Whenever you get toward the end of the giving of law, you tend to have one of these these moments where God basically says, okay, now that you know what you are called to do, let me pronounce upon you the, the terms of the covenant. This is what happens when you obey and live with me in these terms. This is what will happen if you disobey. And so we see this in Exodus. We see this uh, at least in part in Exodus. We see it in Leviticus here. We also see it in Deuteronomy and Numbers um, as God calls his people and prepares them to equip uh, to, to take the promised land and then live this out, put it to work. Let's begin with what I'm calling, verses 1 and 2, the intolerance of God. might strike you as interesting. God is actually intolerant of some things. He is intolerant of the worship of anyone else. Idolatry is something God is truly intolerant of. Listen to these verses. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Now, this is a reminder. In a sense, it's kind of that sum up of all that he requires of his people. He is saying, listen, your worship is to function according to the terms that I have assigned. And that's it. You could say it this way. God is not a God of uh, a both and in this scenario. He is calling us to either or. Either you will worship me and serve me alone, or you set your face against me and embrace the gods of the land. You cannot say, well, I want a little bit of you, Lord, and, but I also want to appease these Canaanite pagan gods as well. And so we'll have little statues and we'll, we'll put up the, the poles and the pillars and the, and the images we'll bow before. But we love you too, Lord. He says, no, that's not how it's going to work. You shall worship and serve me alone alone sometimes you run into this in our day it's kind of like a a choose your own uh religion you 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 build like a build a bear right you put a little bit of this in and a little bit of that and and oh sure i'll take some jesus right put that in there too that's not how it works you see this both in the old testament and in the new exclusive worship is his requirement he is intolerant of sharing his glory he will not do it He is jealous for the worship of himself. What's interesting about this is not only is he jealous because it is right and he is worthy, right? That is is such a massive part of the equation. But at the same time, it's the most loving thing he can do for us is to tell us, don't wallow around in the mud and bow down to nothings when you can come and be satisfied in your worship of me. And so it's a, 
an either or, not a both and. I love this phrase. When you think of Leviticus, think of how often this phrase has been repeated. I am the Lord. I am the Lord, not a Lord. I am the Lord, your God. Worship me alone. God is a God of intolerance when it comes to this. Now, let's look about the blessings of obedience. Verses thir- uh, 3 through 13. Uh, these are beautiful verses. Um, and so let's just unpack these as we go. 3 through 13. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land. You shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from your land. Think about this. We don't feel this as much in our day. But in that day, when you had lions and tigers and bears prowling around at night, causing all kinds of damage, that's fearsome issue. You're afraid of these things. You're out on your land. You don't just hop in your truck, you know, or grab your shotgun. God says, I will remove harmful beasts from your land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred. Think of that. And a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and I will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. Your barns are going to be so full that, that you've you got piles of food left from the previous harvest and you've got all of this new stuff and you're like, well, I guess we'll just throw it out because we've got, we've got all this more coming in. Think of the blessings God has promised to his people. These are covenant blessings. Prosperity, peace, protection, victory, tremendous victory over their enemies. But the most significant one comes at the very end here. I just want to point these first four out, if you could sum these up. Sometimes the prosperity gospel preachers, they'll get stuck on these, right? And, and they'll, they'll turn God into a genie and make him into a kind of like, just come over and rub the lamp. Do you want all of the good stuff? Well, God will get it for you. So we've got to remind ourselves here. Don't ever put the gifts ahead of the giver. That's why I like how it lands here. The presence of God is the key. That's the most important blessing. We're going to see that in a sec. But so often people will focus on prosperity and peace and happiness and abundance and all these things. Listen, none of that matters a bit if you don't have him. However, he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And he promises to his people, Israel, 
I will lavish this upon you. You will be blown away at the blessings that I bestow as you walk with me in this covenant relationship. Listen to these last verses here. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect, upright. Hold your head high, Israel. Don't be ashamed. You are slaves no more. You're mine. You're my people. And as you walk in obedience with me, the terms of the covenant he lays out, I'm going to be with you. I will walk among you and be your God. This echoes out of Genesis 1 and 2, doesn't it? In the cool of the day, the Lord would walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. Unbroken intimacy and closeness. Now, it was different in this day because of the fall. There was a difference of equation there. But still, God with us is the greatest gift we could have. I've said it before, I'll say it again here. It makes, it makes such a difference in the way you think about life. The greatest gift that God can ever give anyone is Himself. It's Himself. He gave Job the most precious gift He could have ever given Job. How did He give it to Job? Through trials and suffering. Job looked at the end of that journey and he said, I... I, I I thought I knew you, right? I had heard of you, but now, now I see you. You have given me more of you as I walk through suffering. Hmm. God delights to give us himself. That is the highest goal, the most treasured reality. Now think about where we live. Think about the time in which we live and think about the reality of the gospel that meets us today. The single greatest blessing is the presence of God in your life. Jesus said this before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. I love these words. Behold, I am with you always, always, to the end of the age. There won't come a time where you can ever be in a place or a situation and say, He's not with me. I'm all on my, on my own. He left me high and dry. It's one of the reasons as believers that we have such great comfort even when we go through trials, when we pass through the waters or the fire. We are not alone, friends. Listen to how Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. In the context of calling us out of being unequally yoked, right? Don't marry an unbeliever. What fellowship has light with darkness? And then he says this, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? See the context there? The intolerance of God? He doesn't tolerate that. We, friends, believers, followers of Christ, those who have been saved by his son, we are now the temple of the living God. He is dwelling in us like he hovered over the tent of meeting as this was spoken and given. 
And then Paul quotes from our passage. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. New Testament reality meets us here today. He quotes from Leviticus 26. It's a beautiful example of how the Old Testament is setting up the New Testament. The shadow to the reality. Friends, here we are today. We can't see him, but he is here. He is here. Now, the covenant terms, I just have to say this because if we're not careful, we're going to lay this out in a very non-New Testament way as we think about it. The covenant terms function this way. Obedience realizes blessings. It doesn't earn them. It's so important to see this. You already have my blessing, right? I've chosen you to be my people, he says, of Israel. Okay, not all the nations. He said, I chose you out of the nations. I made you a nation and I set my covenant upon you. I set upon you my blessing. So their obedience is not earning them reward. It's realizing the reward that is already theirs. God is just like, I'm, I'm ready to pour it out. Here it is. It's yours. You're my people. I'm your God. I've already set you free from slavery. Now, walk with me. Journey with me. Obey my statutes and watch what happens. The covenant will be realized in blessings. However, disobedience will forfeit the blessing for punishment, for discipline. And we're going to see how significant that is. Now, it's different for Israel at this time than it is for New Testament believers. And you just have to remind yourself of this as you read through these things. For the believer in Jesus Christ, there is no wrath to pay. Jesus has paid the wrath in full. The cross, his work on the cross, that six hours absorbed all of the wrath for all who trust in him. There's no more wrath to pay. pay. However, there is loving discipline. God disciplines those he loves. And I think that meets us as we move through these verses. I want you to feel that his commitment to us comes both in the form of blessing and punishment, discipline. Now, there may have been glimpses of his wrath that fell upon Israel at points along the way. But so much of his uh, punishment here was to shape them and call them out of the dark, to, to call them back to him. So, punishment for disobedience. This is the bulk of our verses here today. Punishment for disobedience. Listen to how this sets up. It's, it's almost like an ascending scale of, of disobedience. But, Israel, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all, I command, all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And just pause there for a second. Note the progression, right? There's kind of a, a spiraling effect of this. And remember, this is communal. He's speaking this to Israel as a whole, not to an individual. He's saying this 
the community of Israel. So not all of these things are going to happen to every single person. But when you look at the big picture, if you walk in this way, Israel, this is what's going to come. Look at how it builds. Well, you know, Lord, I just, I'm not paying attention. I, I, I just don't, I don't really want to engage. I, I don't, I don't want to listen to your word. I don't have any desire to really change my life from the things that I like to do. This is my thing. I don't want it to be your thing. As a result, no, I, I don't, I don't want to obey. You know, no offense, I, but it's just not for me. And then there's this, this slide to spurn God's statutes. I don't like your rules, God. I'm sick of this stuff. You know what? I hate them. I abhor these commandments. They make me sick. You make me sick, God. I mean, it, it's like this, this, this spiraling effect gets deeper and deeper to the point where you, you with, with strong, set will say, I will not walk in your way. And you set your face against God. You make him your enemy instead of your friend. I pray as we consider these things today that there's no one here in this room that if you're honest would be realizing that kind of a settled life. Just a, you know, like I, I, I just, I don't, I don't want to obey you, God. I'm not interested. Now, it's likely that if you were that settled and you would abhor God's rules, you're probably not here, right? But it's possible to say, eh, this, eh, sermon, eh, probably should, eh, I don't really want to pay attention to that. I just want to keep doing my thing. Let these words be a warning call to your soul. The same God that we worship is the God of these words. He has not changed. He is as committed to loving and disciplining his own as he was back here. So there's ascending national consequences for rebellion and hard-heartedness. Let's just move through these verses and we'll let them ring out. I'm going to have the ESV audio read for us. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. 
and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste, and will make your sanctuaries desolate, and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheathe the sword after you. And your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. They shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword, though none pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies, and you shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemies' lands because of their iniquity, and also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. Right. That's a lot. You know, it's interesting when you hold up against one another the blessings and the punishment. The punishment here is far more detailed, far more extensive than the blessing. One of the reasons is because of our rebel hearts. We just, we're a people that has to learn the hard way. We're stubborn, stiff-necked in our sin. I was struck by the, the echo of these verses. I thought about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I've been in counseling situations with people who are flippant with their sin. They don't, they don't really care. I'm doing my thing. I'm not worried about God, right? And, and more, most dangerous is people who, who say, yeah, but I'm saved. But I, I'm, I'm good to go. There have been times where I've been literally like, I just want to love you enough to tell you God could strike you dead saying that you realize that do you do you not understand the discipline of god can be severe and swift story was told of a kid who was living his life for the world rebelling grew up in church he knew god's righteous decree and he said i don't care i'm gonna live for me god 
turned his truck upside down in the river. And he was drunk. Somehow, he found himself on the side of the road. I don't, he doesn't remember it, but God got his attention. He got his attention and he said, enough already. It's time to do business, to deal with me. Friends, that's love. Don't miss that. That's love. God is faithful to bless, absolutely. And he is faithful to punish. Both expressions of love. His commitment to his people is unshakable. Look at this list. I will bring upon you physical disease, agricultural calamity, military defeat, left and right. Whatever strength you have in your military will be gone so fast. I'll bring distress and dread. You'll be absolutely paranoid. Drought and poor harvest. I will dry up your land and make it impossible to grow food. I will send back in the wild beasts that otherwise would leave you alone. They're going to come in and they are going to rob you of your children. They're going to empty the streets. I will send devastating, devastating pestilence. I will bring war and I will bring exile. I will bring hung, hunger. So extreme will your hunger be that cannibalism will break out. Friends, it did. It did. It happened. I will devastate your cities and I will bring rest for the land, the rest that you refused. I will bring panic and paranoia. A leaf will blow in the wind and you will run for your life. Thus says the Lord. Wow. Huh. Same God. Same God. How serious does God view defiance? You know, just, I mean, just kind of take that to heart. Sin is a big deal to God. I mean, we, we've got to feel that. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus did not die on a cross because that just happened randomly. That was a time period chosen. One of the most horrific ways a person could die. That's when he said, I'm going to send my son, and that's the way it's going to go. He's going to a Roman cross to be crucified. That is a statement about how serious sin is. It is always significant that believers, Christians, followers of Christ, feel the weight of their sin. Now, praise God, we've got a place to go. We've got a place to go. But it is dangerous for a believer to walk around and say, hey, let's sin it up that grace may abound. I'm good to go. I got the fire insurance. He doesn't care if I sin and sin and sin. No, he, he forgave me. That is extremely dangerous. But pastor... What about God's unconditional love? Well, let's talk about that. I'm glad you asked. I am concerned 
about the use of this phrase. God's love is unconditional. And, and here's, here, here's what I would say. I agree, it is, yes. But it may not be the way that it is sometimes used. Okay? God is committed to us, right? He just loves us. And no matter what happens, his love never changes. True, true. But that does not mean that he's a trailer. And he's just willing to go along with whatever you want to do. He's just going to follow you around. Hey, I'm really into this. Eh, I'm not into that. I'd like to drive down this ditch for a while and wallow in the mud. Oh, great. Hey, I'm committed to you. I'm with you. I'm right here. Let's go. That's not who God is. He is the sovereign. He demands our obedience, our sanctification, our commitment to holiness. Be holy as I am holy, declares the Lord. I am going to love you unconditionally toward holiness. Hmm. Hebrews 12 must echo in our minds as we read this litany of discipline and punishment. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his look holiness that's his primary goal for the life of his people holiness that has not changed that was true back here and it's true right here today he is unwavering in his commitment to making you holy and he will bring out the paddle in love to bring that to pass For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hmm. What's interesting is the connection between the first commandments and the fifth. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long. Where? Where? In the land. This has everything to do with that. That the Lord your God is going to give you. You want to live long in the land? Then honor your father and mother. Father and mother, do you love your kids? Are you committed to them? Then discipline them. Hmm. Sometimes we have this notion of God that, that we can just push him, right? He's just like, like in the shopping market, little Tommy, he's grabbing for the M&Ms, and his mom is like, Tommy, you stop that. I'm going to count to three, right? Don't do that. Tommy's like, yeah, right, Mom. You know, got a beard. He's like, he knows exactly what's going on. I see right past it. What, the count to three? Whatever. I learned that years ago. Tommy, one, two with a smile. Three. And what's the response? Okay, fine, Tommy, fine. Just, if I get you one of those, will you just stop? You see, if you grow up like that in a home where your parents do not love you enough to draw the line in the sand and then when you defy them, bring pain to the equation. Make clear the line, parents, because the same notion of obedience and joyful blessing that they experience as they obey you has everything to do with their notion 
of God and His call upon their lives to obey. Well, we'll just wear them out, right? We have a, a whole generation of entitlement happening. People just running into laws and like, oh, wait, what? There's consequence for that? You mean I can't just break all the windows in Seattle and get away with it? You shouldn't. Where does that come from? It comes from sin. The heart of rebellion is bound up in a child and love cares enough to, to discipline them. Now, let's be clear. Do so lovingly. Uh, the loving discipline is not the lack of self-control. It is the presence of that. It's about the child. It's not about you letting out your anger. No, that's not discipline. That's abuse. Let's be clear. Loving discipline is always about the child. And it's true of God as well. Like a father. He loves us. He is so committed in his unconditional love. His love is so absolute, so complete that he will punish you. He will even kill you if need be to call you out of the wallowing in the mud and back into the light where there's joy and satisfaction and heart delight. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I feel that Christians in our day, we collectively, we don't tremble before God as we ought. It's as if God says to His people in advance of their stubborn, hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion. They did all this stuff. They did it. Right? They, it did not go well. He says before it happens, wake up, O sleeper. Turn from your sins. Don't run into the dark. Walk with me right here. Delight in obedience. Enjoy safety and peace and provision. Now the good news is, the chapter doesn't end there. There's more verses. This is such good news for us. Promises of grace. Listen to verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, if they confess it in their treachery that they committed against me, there's the answer to how serious is defiance of God. He calls it treachery. We can't even use the word sin. I keep hearing the word shame. That's true. Right. That's good. But that's not enough. Shame is the result sometimes of our sin. We need, to, we need to use biblical words to describe our offense. It is iniquity. It is treachery. It is cosmic treason. Sin is serious. But there's hope for sinners like you and me. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity their fathers committed in treachery, against me and, and also walking contrary to me so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. And I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. 
and I will remember the land. But the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquities. There's consequence, friends. It's biblical. Don't think that there's no consequence for sin. It's, it's, it's there, but it's there because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, listen to these words of grace. For all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. You hear the commitment of his love? He is saying my love is so complete that I will not give up on you. I will not cast you aside even though you deserve it. I won't let you go. I will keep you. For their sake, I will remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and the rules and the laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. You know what's weird is they're hearing these things and you almost, as God is talking, you have glimpses of his full knowledge, his omniscience. He's almost giving them the rebuke that they're going to receive all of these years later. Like we're studying Ezra and Nehemiah right now. We're there. And, and to study it at the same time as Leviticus is perfect timing. These words met them and look at how he stirred their hearts. He's, he said, I'm going to stir your hearts and I'm going to call you back to the land after your exile. His commitment is to his people. He won't quit. He won't quit. He won't give up. So in that sense, his unconditional love, absolutely. It rings out. He is the keeper of his covenant. It is the unshakable covenant love of God that blesses and punishes. He is committed to his people. These verses, they describe a good model of us about what it looks like to turn from our own sins. They describe confession. When we confess, we, we give full ownership of our sin to us. We, we did this, Lord. We don't give fair names to foul sins. We call it what it is. This is what we did. It was wrong. We agree that your righteous discipline fit the offense. You were right to send us into exile. We heard this even in, in Ezra. Remember in the letter that they sent? They acknowledge humbly, we sinned. We rebelled and God sent us into exile. And now he's calling us to return. This is great. It's an agreement that your discipline was right. Remorse is, is, is so fitting. Contrition, right? Humble sorrow for the offensiveness of sin. It's the difference between when Johnny and Sarah, siblings, get in a fight and the parent says, listen, Johnny, say you're sorry to your sister. And he's like, sorry. Right? That, what? that means nothing. 
If it's only words and not heart, we have not repented. We have not confessed. So confession is not just mechanical. It is heartfelt. I see my sin. I grieve over its offense chiefly against you and the way that it hurt others. And I turn from it. Repentance is turning from rebellion to the Lord in obedience. That involves faith, doesn't it? Repentance and faith always function together. Repentance and faith. I believe your promise. I trust your goodness, your provision. I embrace it. I turn from my sins to you. And then the beauty of reconciliation it's a reaffirmation of love and a restoration of intimacy. Lord, I don't want anything between us. I don't want barriers of sin or walls of depravity to, to barricade my soul from your beauty. I want to come all the way here. No, no walls, no break. Friends, for us, this is the gospel. <laughs> this is how the gospel functions. And many times daily in our lives as the Spirit lovingly convicts us of our sin. Which path did Israel take? Well, I think we know. It's one of the reasons why your Bible is so long. It chronicles the spiraling disobedience. Now, there were some good days. Don't get me wrong. There were days where they walked with God and delighted in Him and obeyed Him. And God did what He promised. The terms of the covenant in some of those cases were beautifully upheld, but then, by and large, over overarching the record is it's dismal. Hmm. Israel is a case study of the human heart. God chose a people. He set upon them His grace and His love. He gave them the gift of His law. He called them to obedience, and they disobeyed they failed miserably and so do we friends so do we we, we need more than law we the, the law can't save us we can see it and still disobey we need a savior don't you just feel that this litany of consequence and punishment happened and just screams off these pages, we need a Savior. Friends, we have a Savior. Praise God. We have a Savior. We are not just people who just work tirelessly to try to do and perform and then are constantly reminded that it's not enough. We can't do it. We can't earn our salvation. So our response this morning, look at how this comes together in Christ. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, John writes, and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's the question you have to ask. That's a promise of God, okay? That, that is true and certain. 
How is that possible? How can God show grace and mercy and forgiveness to sinners and still be just? How does that not deny the goodness that he is? The only answer to that is that he has made provision to pay for our offenses and our sins. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Think of the, the connection here. Galatians is all about this connection between law and gospel. And Paul says, listen, you want to know how the gospel works? Christ became the curse and drank the wrath that we deserve to drink because of our failure to keep the law. All those curses should fall on us. Instead, they fell on him. We don't face wrath. The fires of hell have been quenched for all who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But not just that. There's more. It's not just the penalty that's been addressed. It's that we have the fullness of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. It's already happened. He has blessed us. How? In Christ. In Christ. The blessings will meet us in Christ. What kind of blessings? What's the nature of these blessings? Every spiritual blessing. Nothing held back. You want to be blessed of God? Run to Jesus Christ. And you will find not only the canceling of your debt that you have stored up because of your offenses against God in sin. You will find an infusion, or the theological word is the imputation of His righteousness and the blessings of God. Unfading. These are ours in the heavenly places. Friends, these are ours right now. We have these in Christ. So we can rightly sing hallelujah. End of the day, all I have is Christ. Right? That's all I need. That's all I need. I don't need a list of all the things I've done to try to prove myself worthy. That never works. God is not impressed by that. It's like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. You'll never make it. You can get a big running start. You're going to die. It doesn't work that way. You need a bridge. There is only one bridge that can span that gap, and that is Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the gospel, friends. We need to reckon with our own rebellion. We need to see a God who is perfect in justice. We need to see our sin that is treason and treachery. And then we'll understand why the gospel is such good news. It's good news. We proclaim it to the ends of the earth because it's the only good news that will change sinners into saints. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your love. Your commitment to your people is unshakable. 
Thank you for the way that you have brought in your wisdom to save sinners like me, like all of us here today. We thank you that we can truly be blessed. We can be forgiven. We can know the riches of your glory. We can have you. If we come to you through your son, Jesus Christ, confess our sins and feel the remorse and the weight of our offenses against you and then turn in repentance and faith to embrace you, Jesus, as Savior and Lord and to be reconciled to you, restored in our relationship that we were created to walk in. Oh God, we give praise to you for the gospel. I also give praise to you, Lord, for your commitment to your people to make us holy, that you won't just let us wallow around in the mud thinking that somehow there's life there, but, but that you lovingly engage the rod of discipline to bring us to our senses and call us back into the light. And you clean us up, Lord. Thank you for your commitment. Your unconditional love loves us in your discipline as well. Oh God, we want to be holy as you are holy. We are not that way yet. Oh, we are works in process, but Lord, we're growing. By your grace, I pray this week would be a, a, an uphill work as we seek to obey these commands and, and to love you and live in obedience to you. Make us holy, we pray. That's our cry. Make, make us holy as you are holy. Grow us. Love us. Convict us of our sin, Holy Spirit. Turn our gaze to Christ the perfection of holiness and call us forward in our walk, Lord. Forgive us for thinking too little of our offenses and remind us of the joy of the finished work of the gospel, that we are not to live in condemnation, but we are to be free and holy. Oh, God, we love you. We delight in your covenant love this morning and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.